When we come to church, I think we're quite used to hearing about the cost of obedience to God. Jesus himself talked about counting the cost of being his disciple. If we are going to live faithfully for God, there are some things we might lose out on. There's a price we might have to pay. That is a solid biblical point. But that biblical point has a flip side. The flip side is, if we choose disobedience to God, there is a price to pay there as well. And in the case of disobedience, it is not a price we might have to pay. It is a sure and certain price. The cost of sin is high and it is certain. That's what we're going to see as we turn again to the book of Lamentations this evening. We've already looked at the first three of these five poems, and they have been full of emotion, strong emotion, often desperate emotion. But now, in this fourth poem, the poet looks around more like a calm observer, and he tries to assess what he sees in the ruins of Jerusalem. And what he sees is the high price of sin. And what I would suggest to you is, as our poet describes the high price Jerusalem had to pay for its sin, is also helping us understand the high price humanity pays for its sin. It is a price we pay not just once in history, like Jerusalem did when it fell to the Babylonians. In the case of humanity, every new generation pays the price. So with that wider relevance in mind, let's read Lamentations 4. If you haven't turned there yet, it's page 828 in the church Bibles or in the larger print Bibles, 1284. Lamentations 4, verse 1. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young. But my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearance like lapis lazuli. But now they're blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. 
those killed by the sword, are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children, who became their food when my people were destroyed. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They are so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you're unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor, the elders no favor. Moreover, our eyes failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers, we watched for a nation that could not save us. People stalked us at every step, so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of us. But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile. But he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. This is God's word. We've already said this passage is about the high cost of sin. And our poet describes that cost as lost glory and lost foundations. And then at the very end of the poem, he assures us the price must be paid. First of all, in verses 1 to 10, the high price of sin involves lost glory. Look again at verse 1. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. This is talking about the ruined state of the temple. Pretty much everything in the temple had been overlaid with gold. And the high priest had a special breastplate that was adorned with precious jewels. The temple was a glorious place, but the glory is gone. The gold has lost its luster. The sacred gems are scattered. 
Now, I'm no expert on precious metals, but apparently gold doesn't actually tarnish. In any case, the gold had been stripped from the temple and it had been taken away. The same with the precious stones from the high priest's breastplate. We're not being told here you could wander the ruined streets of Jerusalem and actually find gold and diamonds in the dust. So, what is the point then of this description? The point is simply that the glory of Jerusalem has gone. It was a God-given glory. And just as it seems impossible for gold to tarnish, so it seemed impossible for that God-given glory to be removed. But it has been removed. And not just from the buildings of the city. Verse 2 says the same thing has happened to the people. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. This book often mentions children, meaning those who are young, and we will hear them mentioned again soon. But here in verse 2, the poet seems to be referring to the whole population, all the people of Jerusalem. They had great glory, they were worth their weight in gold, but now they're ordinary like clay pots. At this time in history, clay pots were two a penny. If your clay pot got really dirty, it was not worth your while trying to clean it. You just chucked it out and you got another one. Archaeologists have found whole heaps of discarded clay pots. And so, calling the people of Jerusalem clay pots is another way of saying the glory has gone. They're nothing special anymore. Sometimes the Bible uses this image of a potter to speak about God. The idea is that He, the Creator, makes and molds us as He wills. But here, we're not being told God is the potter. The point is more dark and more despairing than that. These people who had such glory have lost their human dignity to such an extent, it's hard to know what makes them human anymore. They're like a blob of clay that can be shaped any old way. Does that ring any bells about our own situation today? Don't we live in a time and place where our God-given human dignity has been so trampled and so forgotten that we hardly recognize the glory of being human anymore? Instead, we consider ourselves to be pots of clay that can be molded and reshaped any old way. Reshape your body, reshape your identity, anything goes. Our God-given glory is so tarnished, we don't even know what human dignity is anymore. Here in Lamentations, we've seen how often this book specifically mentions children as the ones who suffer most. And in verse 3, the poet comes back to that point. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Jackals 
were detested in the ancient world. They prowled around ruins, eating whatever rotten stuff they found there. But here the poet says, even jackals have more heart for their little ones than my people do. God says, my people are more like ostriches in the way they care for their young. And if we don't know anything about ostriches, the book of Job says, the ostrich treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. So the poet says, the very time when the children in Jerusalem need care and when they need guidance, in this desert time of devastation and ruin, my people have become heartless to the children. Look at verse 4. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. Both those verses seem to be speaking about the young. The children are hungry, thirsty, and destitute. And that is all the more tragic because they used to eat delicacies. They used to be dressed in royal purple. And you know what the poet says? This is worse than it was for Sodom. The city of Sodom was notorious in the Old Testament for its wickedness. And as verse 6 says, that city was overthrown in a moment. Genesis chapter 19 describes how God's judgment fell suddenly on Sodom and on its sister city, Gomorrah. Burning sulfur rained down on them and they disappeared overnight. But here the poet says, it's worse for Jerusalem, my people. Because they have been devastated and yet they're still here. They're an emaciated, inglorious shadow of what they used to be. Verse 7, their princes wear brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearance like lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is a blue gemstone. But now they are blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the fields. These people have gone from a state of radiant health to people who are alive, but barely. They're shriveled and dry, they're wasting away. In verse 8, they're described like they have been charred by fire. The same as the buildings in the city. But this isn't just about wasting away physically, they're wasting away morally as well. Verse 10 describes once compassionate women who got so hungry during the siege of Jerusalem, they cooked and they ate their own children. Jerusalem's glory has wasted away in more ways than one. Lost glory is part of the high price of sin. And that is not just true for the ancient city of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem lived in a special place, 
place where God himself was present in the temple. He'd given the people a unique dignity. They had the glory of being his special people. He called them his treasured possession. They had the glory of a God-given purpose. Their lives were to display God's goodness and wisdom to the world as they lived by God's instruction. But the people chose sin and they lost their glory. Of course, they chose sin because it seemed life would be better if they disobeyed God and went their own way. But the cost was high. It's been described for us here. And this price paid by Jerusalem is a miniature picture of the price paid by humanity. When we choose to go our own way. The beginning of the Bible tells us the first man and woman were given a special place, a garden, where God himself walked with them. The man and woman were given incredible glory and dignity. They were made in the image of God, we're told. And they were to steward his earth for him. But they wanted more. They wanted to be God. And when they followed that evil desire, they lost their glory. They lost their intimacy with God. They became enemies of one another. And the earth itself started to resist them and frustrate them. And today, you and I live in those ruins. The glory has been lost. Instead of harmony, there's enmity, war. On a national level, there's always war somewhere in the world, always. And on a personal level, human beings carry on their own little private wars and their families, with their neighbors. We've all seen one or two of those little wars. Maybe we've been involved in a few of them. And isn't it fair to say we don't display too much glory and too much dignity in those little wars we fight with each other? It is amazing the pettiness and the vindictiveness we human beings can stoop to. Our human glory is shriveled and dry, wasted away. And we've already mentioned who it is that suffers most in this loss of glory that sin brings. It's the children. The women of Jerusalem ate their children We abort ours. Could there be any greater sign that we have lost our bearings when it comes to the value and glory of human life? And even when our society tries to care for children, we are so confused about our true glory, we often make the mess worse. When we abandon our maker and his wisdom, we can't even tell little boys they're boys and little girls they're girls. As if their identity was so insubstantial 
it can just be tossed away and replaced with another. Like replacing one clay pot with another. And the irony of all this is, as human beings, don't we spend our lives chasing after glory? Don't we want to matter? We want to be significant? Isn't that what every Instagram user is really looking for? Significance? We chase after glory, but sin has left us with nothing but the ruins of glory. We know today what Lamentations is talking about. And the next section of this poem we're shown the high price of sin includes lost foundations. It's summed up in verse 11. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. Foundations here means more than just the bases of the walls and the buildings. The foundations of Jerusalem's confidence and security have fallen as well. Notice how verse 12 says, the nations around Jerusalem did not believe the city could fall. Why would they think that? Well, Jerusalem had been surrounded before, back in 701 BC. That time the enemy was the Assyrians. They were another superpower like Babylon. The Assyrians were just as formidable as Babylon. They surrounded Jerusalem with a colossal army, but the Bible tells us that in the night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrian army. It was an incredible, supernatural deliverance. It was so incredible that the New Testament actually, the Old Testament actually describes the event in detail three times. In 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and in Isaiah. It was a famous event in Israel. And obviously, it was a famous event outside of Israel as well. Because it convinced the surrounding nations Jerusalem was unassailable. It was impregnable. And not because it had strong walls. The city was impregnable because it was defended with an awesome supernatural power. But Jerusalem's sin caused the foundations of its security to be removed. Enemies did overrun it. And notice what else fell. Religion. Verse 13. Jerusalem's fall happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They're so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you're unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor, the elders no favor. The earlier poems in this book mention the guilt of Jerusalem's religious leaders. 
They told the people lies about God and lies about themselves. The words of those religious leaders were false and worthless. They did not expose the people's sin while there was time to do something about it. Instead, those religious leaders gave the people false security. They fed the myth that the city was secure no matter what. That God would bail them out no matter what. No matter how long they persisted in disobedience. And now, now that the city has fallen, how much credence are people willing to give those religious leaders? How much respect? None at all. Verses 14 to 16 describe priests and prophets being ostracized and avoided by the people. And what's most horrible about this is the people's only real security truly did come from their relationship with God. That was their great foundation. But because these official representatives of God, these people who were trusted to speak for God, because they spoke lies in God's name, because they said everything's okay when a jolly well was not okay, because they abused their position as messengers from God, the people have responded by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because the people were betrayed by lying priests and prophets, now they have no time for any priests or prophets. Which means they don't even know where to look for true security. They don't know where to find a sure foundation. And yet again, isn't there a parallel with our society today? Generations ago, many church leaders in this country decided to buy into the theory of evolution. The theory that says we are not special, intentionally created beings like the Bible says we are. No, we're just the result of an almost infinite chain of random mutations. Generations ago, many church leaders also decided to buy into the speculative theories of theology professors. Theologians who decided there couldn't possibly be a supernatural realm. And so ignoring any evidence to the contrary, they taught the Bible is just a human book. In fact, a library of 66 fairly unconnected human books. Rather than being one book with one coherent story from one divine author who worked through the various human authors, Influential church leaders surrendered all of that ground. They abandoned those foundations, creation and the authority of Scripture. And now, today, after generations of telling people they're just accidents, telling them the Bible has nothing eternally significant to offer them, now church leaders are surprised when the people of this country think the church is a dead, irrelevant institution. 
But is it truly a surprise that many people today would consider church the last place they'd look for hope and security? Given how much the church has abandoned its foundations, is it a surprise when people's attitude to the church today is just like it was back in Jerusalem? Go away, don't touch us. As if church people are lepers. Like they have something unpleasant that might be contagious. Several times I've had that kind of experience when people have asked me what I do. I used to think it would open up conversations telling people that I work in a church. But on one occasion I was chatting to a guy on a beach and when I told him what, he, what I did, he actually moved his whole family to another part of the beach. And I know it wasn't just my accent. He had been very friendly up until the word church entered the conversation. Now I know, thankfully, it's not always like that. We can be very glad that some people are open to listen. But the point is, our nation today is facing a crisis of mental and emotional security. And generations of lying church leaders have to take their share of the blame for that loss of security. Talk about consuming our foundations. Those church leaders have done that by undermining people's confidence in Scripture. And that is in spite of very good reasons to have confidence in Scripture. Those very good reasons for confidence have never gone away. But they've been buried and they've been sidelined by church leaders who thought they were being progressive. When all they were doing was consuming our foundations. But of course, lying religious leaders aren't the only ones to blame. They were not the only ones to blame for Jerusalem's loss of security. Look at verse 17. Moreover, our eyes failed looking in vain for help. From our towers, we watched for a nation that could not save us. The people of Jerusalem didn't actually need massive encouragement to turn away from God. And the generations before Jerusalem fell, the people looked to a whole variety of foreign powers to give them security. Here in verse 17, the nation that could not help them is probably Egypt. During the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, the people in the city made Egypt the foundation of their hope. They trusted the Egyptians would come in like the cavalry and they would shoo the Babylonians away. And for a while, it looked a bit hopeful, but it never came to anything. Alliances with other nations did not provide security. And look at the fearful existence the people were reduced to in verse 18. People stalked us at every step, so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. 
We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. The Lord's anointed is a reference to the king, literally the Messiah. And that title tells us Israel's king was not like any other king. He was a gift from the Lord. He was installed by the Lord. Psalm 2 says the Lord's anointed king will inherit the nations. Psalm 72 says he will rescue from oppression and violence. So there was nothing false about Israel's hope in God's anointed king. God's word encouraged them to hope in him. The Messiah was their God-given life breath. He was their security. He would be like a great tree or a great rock they could shelter under. And yet, the man who sat on the throne of Israel proved to be false messiahs. They were not the reliable rock of refuge for Jerusalem. They proved to be either weak or evil or some combination of the two. Here in verse 20, particularly the king in mind is Zedekiah. He was the last king of Jerusalem. He tried to escape the city, but the Babylonians caught him. They killed his sons in front of him. Then they put his eyes out and took him to Babylon in chains. Zedekiah was just one of many false messiahs. False saviors who in the end provided no security or salvation. Today, you and I have plenty of false saviors to choose from. Politicians, counselors, doctors, dietitians, financial advisors, spouses. Whoever it is we look to for security. And the things I just mentioned are all good things. We are blessed if we have good people in those roles. But our sin comes in looking to them for our security. Looking to them as our Messiah. When we do that, the price of our sin is a lack of true security. Because no matter how good they are, they will let us down at some point. Either on purpose or by accident. They will let us down. It's no wonder our society is suffering a crisis of mental health. We are slaves to sin and we pay a high price for our sin. Sin has stolen our glory as human beings and it has consumed our foundations. It's cut us off from our true source of stability and security. How could we be mentally healthy in that condition? There's a high price to pay for sin, and that price cannot be avoided. The end of this poem assures us the price must be paid. Verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. 
Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile. But he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. The point here is that after setting out the price of Jerusalem's sin, Zion is another name for Jerusalem, after setting that out in the main part of chapter 4, now the poet says, you have paid the price, Jerusalem. In verse 22, your punishment will end, would be better translated, your punishment is complete, or your punishment is accomplished. In other words, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile pay the price. God has poured out his wrath in those events. Jerusalem has suffered the judgment for her sin. Back in verse 11, we were told, the Lord has given full vent to his wrath. Jerusalem has been punished for her sin. Price has been paid. But for others, the price of their sin is still waiting to be paid. That's the point of the references to Edom in these verses. Edom was Israel's neighbor to the south. The Edomites were long-standing enemies of Israel. And during the attack on Jerusalem by the Babylonians, Edom saw what was going on, and they took the opportunity to try and pinch some of Israel's territory while the Israelites couldn't do anything about it. And here, the poet says to Edom, enjoy your sinful prophets while you can. Rejoice and be glad. But realize the cup of God's judgment is coming to you. Our price has been paid, but yours is still due, Edom. Sin has a high price, and that price must be paid. Here, at this moment in history, Jerusalem has received God's judgment. She has lost her glory, she's lost her foundations, her price has been paid. But for Edom, the price is still due. And if we widen out our lands at this point and consider the whole of Scripture, we know this event in Israel's history is part of a bigger picture. As human beings, we live our lives paying a high price for sin. We mentioned how sin takes our glory and our foundations. We know about that. We see it all around us. But the fact is, a lifetime is not enough to pay the true price of our sin. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem paid for her sin with devastation and with a 70-year exile. But the true price of our sin is eternal devastation and exile from God. And the price is due for all of us. The good news of the New Testament is that another has come to pay the price for us. We've seen in Lamentations 4, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, was God's provision for his people. He was their very life breath. He was their refuge and he was their salvation. 
But until the arrival of Jesus Christ, every single Messiah in Israel proved to be a false one. Each new king let the people down. Most of them led the people even deeper into sin, but even the best ones couldn't save the people from sin. And so Jerusalem fell. She paid the price for her sin. But today, the true Messiah has come. Jesus came to fulfill all the Old Testament hopes of the Messiah. He fulfills all God's promises about the Messiah. The New Testament describes how the Son of God laid aside his heavenly glory. We sang it at the very beginning this evening. He laid aside that glory and he gave up his own life breath for our salvation. By his death on the cross, Jesus paid the high price for our sin. Those who trust in his sacrifice can say, my punishment is complete. Jesus paid that price for me. On the cross, he took an eternity's worth of wrath for me. He endured an eternity's worth of exile from his Father for me. Jesus paid the price for me, and as I trust in him, I find a sure foundation for my life. I find stability and security in him. He is my very life breath. He restores what sin took away. And I begin to recover the glory I was made for. That glory is recovered as you and I live to love and serve Jesus. That is what we were made for. That is our glory. Not to serve ourselves, but to serve our King. The price must be paid. If we turn away from Jesus, we will pay it ourselves eternally. So we are wise to trust in the one who paid the price for us. And when we do, we find not only has our price been paid, but all the things that sin stole from us become available to us again. We're going to close by giving thanks for our Savior and his work. As we sing together, the price is paid.
What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Amen.